Welcome to the Divorce Survival Guide podcast, where we have open and honest conversations about co-parenting, separation, divorce, and the hardest question of all, should you stay or should you go? I'm Kate Anthony, your Divorce Survival Guide, and I'm here to help you navigate some of the roughest waters you've ever swum in and answer some of your toughest questions. I've been to hell and back, and now it's my mission in life to help you get to the other side of this process with your sanity and your heart intact. Hey everyone, welcome back. So I just wanted to make a quick little plug for the fact that Grit and Grace is still going on. We have room for some new members. So if you are in a position where you are looking for support and you think that the group dynamic would be really um, great for you, which it really is, it's amazing, then I uh, would love for you to set up a consult and see if Grit and Grace is right for you. I think Grit and Grace is best for people who are already in the process and going through divorce because most of the women in it are already going through the process. And I know that some of the women who have joined us who are still trying to decide whether to stay or go feel sort of out of their depth when in the group calls talking about other people's divorce processes. So, and it can be a little confronting. I think it's one of the best places for people who are going through divorce because there's so much information that you get from the group dynamic um, and the information, like people going through stuff and like learning stuff, right? So anyway, Grit and Grace, it's on my website, kateanthony.com. And I would love, love, love to see you there if you feel like that's something that would um, benefit you. Today, I have with me Lawrence and Joni, Larry and Joni Jones, and they are a caring and dynamic couple who've dedicated their lives and professional outreach to helping families navigate the often difficult journey through mental health issues, special needs, and family law. After serving on the Superior Court bench in New Jersey, Larry retired from public service and began teaching at two universities, and he became significantly involved in mediation and alternative dispute resolution. Joni is board certified in psychiatric and mental health nursing and is a certified anger management specialist. She's also a mediator as well. And Larry and Joni actively advocate on a variety of issues, including autism and special needs, co-parenting, cultural competency, domestic violence, and intimate partner violence issues. Uh, and animal-related legal issues. They now live in New Mexico, and they are involved in a multitude of online social education projects. And I had a great time um, talking with them about their project, Point C Divorce. Without further ado, here is my conversation with Larry and Joni. Larry and Joni, thank you so much for joining me on the podcast. It is such a pleasure to meet you both and to speak with you. Thank you for having us. Thank you, Kate. It's a pleasure to be here. You have created something called Point C. Tell us what Point C is and how it came about. Well, Point C came about uh, when I was on the bench uh, in the family court as a judge in the New Jersey Superior Court in the family court several years ago. And as part of the uh, ongoing judicial education and training of judges, 
in New Jersey, there is an annual, what they call judicial college. And I was on the faculty of that college where judges go each year to kind of get updated on the new areas of not only the law, but policies and just different, different thought processes. I got the idea to present this video, which we created called Point C. It's a five minute video and it's really specifically designed really for judges to look at originally. Um, and to kind of summarize in about five minutes, the type of situations that family court judges confront on a daily basis in highly litigious, highly contentious custody or parenting time uh, disputes or just simple divorces involving children. As a judge, I interviewed many, many children during the course of my time on the bench. And it was very obvious to me that even when parents um, had good intentions, uh, sometimes the children were being victimized by their parents' own actions. Um, and so that was really the driving point of point C. So I, I showed it at Judicial College. I got an extremely positive response. And, you know, lawyers and mediators started becoming interested in it. And so after I retired from the bench and retired from public service in 2017, we put it on YouTube and also um, provided it free of charge, point C, to various uh, universities and bar associations across the country. And then recently, um, we we put it up on YouTube and developed this uh, uh, website, which is all free of charge for anyone interested in public, but just basically public education, to talk about um, really directing it towards parents and professionals who are involved in highly contentious, seemingly never-ending litigation with each other while their children suffer emotionally in the process, Jen? Well, I find that with uh, the Point C video, when people are prepping for a divorce, they can, you know, give you something written and what to do and what not to do. And then it becomes like a blah, 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 right? So this video, the short video, it really sends a statement. It impacts everybody differently. When you talk about actions speak louder than words, Yes. This is the video. Is this the song? Is this yeah, the song well, video? There's music. It's set to music. That's yes, that's correct. It's set to music and it has the 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 film that goes with it. The the graphics, the, yes. the the drawings. Yes. So I watched that. We will link to that in the show notes. It is so I mean, I was like bouncing in my seat, like, you know, singing along to it, but it's very, but it is very powerful. Yeah. Yeah, it sends a very strong message. And what I really like about it is that the responses are very unique to the viewer. And the reason for that is they're reflecting upon even their own experiences. So if you were a person that as a child went through a divorce and you're watching this video, sometimes like people are, are crying and it really it's really heartfelt. And then it sends a, a message that, that makes you stop and think. And it gives you an opportunity to, to reset. So like, for an example, the baseline, the child talks about having the greatest mom and dad. And then you have an intact family that's no longer going to be intact. Parents might be on autopilot, and they're not realizing that they're pulling the child into the middle of all this. But Point C takes you on such a powerful journey. And if you want to ask me the strongest message that it sends, it's yeah. not what it's what not to do to decrease the risk of a contentious divorce, which can lead to many other, you know, things with it with a child 
and the person involved themselves. You know, one of the things that struck me while watching it so often in these cases, as you know, right, when there's domestic violence, we're taught we're dealing with post-separation abuse, right? So one of the parents is going to watch this and be like, yes. I'm, this is exactly what I want to protect my child from. Of course, I don't want this for my kid, but he won't stop or she won't stop. And, you know, in the video, it is very sort of, it's both of them, right? Graphically, <laughs> right? But when you're the parent, and I think this is a lot of this is my audience, right? They're the parent that's really trying to protect against this. And you've got one parent who's really coming at it hard. How do you protect your kids at that in that that scenario? Well, in a scenario where there's domestic violence, and 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 again, in the point C video, there's really it, the the fact scenario there is not one party really being at fault, but both of them because that happens very often in family court. Everyone's blaming each other, and you know they're taking no responsibility or have no insight into their own role. In, in contributing to the situation. However, with domestic violence, it's a very different situation, obviously. If somebody has been victimized by domestic violence, number one, they clearly should avail themselves or at least consider availing themselves of any rights they have to get a protective order and to have you know, the state basically in, in intercede on their behalf with a protective order or restraining order. It's called different things in different states and the various forms of relief that may be available with domestic violence. So if one party is being violent towards another, the 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 way to analyze how to go forward on a case may be very very different than if it's a situation where it's not necessarily domestic violence but both parties just have kind of outgrown each other, fallen out of love with each other and are blaming each other for everything that happened in their marriage while the real focus should be on what's going to happen after the divorce. To, for the sake of the child to peacefully move forward. You know, the whole, the, the biggest irony is all of these court cases, these contentious court cases that you see every day of the week throughout the country, you know, are allegedly in furtherance of the best interests of the child. That's the term that's used. And yet the process itself can at times be completely contrary to the best emotional interests of the child, courtesy of not only both parents, but sometimes the system. With domestic violence, though, you have to be super care. It's a whole different dynamic with domestic violence. If someone's being violent and abusive, you have to protect for the safety first. But not every case involves domestic violence, obviously. No. And domestic violence, as as you say, and as you know, is not always physical. So it's not always in, it doesn't always rise to the level of a protective order. Right. And when you've got emotional abuse and psychological abuse and post-separation abuse utilizing the court system as a tool of abuse, it's not as it's not as cut and dry. Right. It's not as black and white. The protections are difficult. Right. And and when I was on, at, on the faculty of judicial college, one of the courses I taught to the other judges was um, drawing. It was on domestic violence and drawing a distinction between domestic violence and what they call domestic contratemps, domestic contratemps, which is essentially, you know, I mean, some cases it's obvious when there was violence. If someone punches their partner in the face, that's violence. When it's just nasty comments, which may be hurtful and may be juvenile, may be inappropriate, it may or may not be domestic violence, depending on the frequency, the context in which things were said, 
you know, if it's been going on on an ongoing basis. So verbal harassment, for example, could be domestic violence. But if someone calls someone a name in the middle of a mutual fight, mutual argument, verbal argument, that may not hit the level required to get a restraining order in some courts. Right. And probably in most, <laughs> I, would, I would hazard to guess. Um, so, Joni, what are your, th- as a mental health professional, what are your thoughts on that when you've got, vers- you know, two parties going at it versus one person attacking and using the courts and then the kids, how, like, how do you protect the children in that? Well, first of all, I think um, the person who's not adding to the consensusness of it, I think that they have to realize that um, we only have control of ourselves. We don't have control of other people. So it's a matter of, of skill building to learn how to respond, because a lot of times you can get so like redrawn back into it, and then there's the trauma again. People think that um, many times that you can get, you can erase events in your life, but, and you can't. So triggers to trauma situations can come up at any time. And this is a very emotional time um, where all these triggers are, are happening. And when we're looking at children, you know, they're looking at you, the parent, as their security, as, you know, as their, their strength. And when they start to see that you, start to lose that, it can go into so many different directions. So there's a lot of um, skill building that that we talk about. It's too much to get into now, but we do have it on our website. So there's there's things that you don't want to have the the trigger to yourself. And there's certain things to 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 go into a proceeding to prepare for this. So for example, many people have heard about the adrenal gland response. They know it as the fight or flight uh, response. And uh, we can start our day at a low level of a one or a two. And then things happen during the event, you can go into a level 10. And what happens is it has multiple effects on your physical symptoms, but it also affects the side of the brain. And when you go into the side of the brain, where now you're becoming very emotional, very reactionary, there's no logical thinking on that, you're responding to what you believe is happening, it's very difficult for you to now come in and uh, be able to have that decision making, the effective decision making to get the outcomes that you 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 can, that you want. So now you learn how to cross over into the side of the brain that's not reactionary. You're able to listen. You um, you have logical thinking and you can make decisions because it's important that you maintain your control. And that's what you have control of, not what the other person is doing. I mean, it's really important advice, right? That there, And there's so much panic and terror in this entire process on the best of days, right? But when you're in a high conflict, quote, high conflict um, situation, it can, you can be really easily triggered and, and kind of lose sight of your rational or I mean, your rational thinking goes out the window as soon as you're triggered anyway, but, but especially to, to be able to re-harness and, and reconnect with that rational calm part of your brain so that your kids feel safe and stabilized, right? That's like the most important thing. 
if you don't have kids, you can go off and scream and yell and throw things and, and whatever. It doesn't matter. But when there are kids involved, so how do you, Joni, work with people to, what advice do you give them to sort of tap back into their central nervous system and calm the triggered part of their brain so that their executive functioning comes back online? Well, one of the things that um, I like to talk about is referred to as heartfelt forgiveness. And most of us know forgiveness in the traditional sense where one may minimize the anger or the hurt from a person's actions so that they can resume their previous relationship. But heartfelt forgiveness is different. You forgive, there's no minimizing. What they did will never be okay. And you don't want to build an emotional relationship with this person. So there is a conscious focus to be free of the emotional burdens that resulted from such actions. For example, if you have a family whose child was murdered and they got the murderer and now they're in a court situation and the family comes in and they say, I forgive you. They are forgiving. So they are not living that trauma day after day that is holding them back tormenting them. They are simply releasing themselves from the burden so they can move on and thrive once again as a family and find happiness. So whatever anger or hurt that led to the divorce, take a breath, push the pause button, and remember what heartfelt forgiveness is what it means, what it does, and then take that gateway to avoid the emotional freedom. You know, a lot of a lot of parents uh, during the course of a very contentious divorce, they say they're taking positions and uh, drawing lines based upon what they believe is in the best interest of the child. And sometimes that's true. And sometimes it's not so true, even if that's what they're saying. And they genuinely believe that. Sometimes the talk about protecting the best interest of the child is completely contradictory to the actions that parents on both sides may take during the course of litigation. If you go into any court, and if you were to look at any litigation that went on for longer than, say, a year, to put an arbitrary, you know, black line across the sand here, there's a pretty good chance I would guess that you'd find some, if you went through the papers, some extreme dysfunction and actions by at least one, if not both parties, that objectively are not consistent with protecting the best emotional interests of the children. Sounds great to say I'm doing this for the kids, but saying it and you're and doing it are two very different things. And sometimes, and I'm not criticizing any attorneys at all. You know, I was an attorney myself for many years before going on the bench. Sometimes attorneys, their positions in their zealous advocacy of their clients are not necessarily consistent with what's in the best interest of the child either. Absolutely. Absolutely. I see it all the time, all the time. Speaking of that, right, you mentioned, um, Larry, that you've done a lot of child interviews. So you actually 
now, not that children necessarily are their, you know, specifically their best advocates. Like, you know, it's hard. We can't say that what they say they want is necessarily in their best interest. So they eat ice cream 24 hours a day and never go to school. <laughs> but, <laughs> and there's a lot that you think and you say that we can learn from these interviews that you've had with these children. You, you can, Kate. And, and I interviewed... I lost track of the number of children I interviewed, but I interviewed a lot of children. And child interviews, you know, each each state has their own rules with child interviews in court. So if you're in the middle of a court case, if you have a lawyer, if you don't have a lawyer, and you're considering, you know, asking for a child interview, it, it, it it's a probably a good idea to at least do some research online and see what the criteria is for a child interview in your particular jurisdiction, because it's not the same in every state. So for example, in New Jersey, um, when I was on the family court bench, um, a court generally had discretion. A family court judge had discretion on whether to interview a child or not. Um, there were some cases where it was more likely than not there would be an interview based on the age of the child, the issues involved, et cetera. If it's a two-year-old child, you're not going to interview a two-year-old child in all likelihood. Sometimes some judges you know, would rather not interview a child for different reasons. They'd have a guardian ad litem, someone appointed to interview the child or a psychologist, whatever the case may be. Uh, but even in cases, in my own experience, even in cases where they were interviewed previously, and you had to be cautious about not putting the child emotionally through a bunch of unnecessary repeat interviews, but sometimes I'd want to hear from the child directly, because I'd be sitting there in the middle of a hearing, listening to both sides go on and on, painting themselves as you know wonderful people, and the other side as being you know a terrible person, even though they were with them for a long time. And that's fine. You know, they were entitled to state their best case scenario, but they're all arguing about the child and the child's best interest. And sometimes it was relevant to hear from the child. And you're absolutely right. A, a child, generally a minor, doesn't make the decision on what's best for themselves because that's why they don't get to vote until they're 18. They don't get to drink till they're 21. And they're, they're you know, they're a minor. So they're not fully developed yet uh, mentally and emotionally. They're just not. None of us are. That's why you're children. But in most, uh, certainly in New Jersey, I'll say, and and in and I would say in the majority of most states, a child's preference when they're of an older age, which can vary from state to state, but certainly as a teenager, let's say for example, yeah. their their position and the reasoning for their position is at least relevant in a court as part of the overall evidence a court has to decide. Doesn't mean a court is bound by it. So there were times a child would come in on an interview. And it was pretty obvious they were either rehearsed by one parent or the other, or they were looking for whoever they got the better deal from, from one parent or the other in terms of a curfew or an allowance or less restrictions on doing homework. Yeah. Right. Right. So sometimes kids could be manipulative too, but in general, the overwhelming majority of the kids I interviewed were not manipulative. And I can tell you that while every case is different, Notwithstanding the, the 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 battles between the parents and their typewritten insults against each other in their court filings, the children generally tended to want two things. This came up over and over again in, in interviews, regardless of the children's background. Number one, uh, they resented being in the middle of their parents' dispute. Parents sometimes felt uh, they sometimes pushed for an interview because their kid told them in their kitchen under parental interrogation, that they wanted to be with one parent versus the other. They're telling each parent what they think the parent wants to hear, you know, the politically correct answer to each of them to keep the pressure down. And then when they're in court, they'd say something very different because when I interview the kids, the parents are not allowed to be in the courtroom. It's what's called an in-camera 
uh, uh, interview. Just my staff was there. The parents are not allowed to be there. So the children would sometimes say things that were very different from what either parent was representing. They thought the child was going to say. And over and over and over again, the kids had issues with both parents putting them in that spot. That's number. They, they resented both parents for being put in that spot. And the second thing is they what they wanted more than anything is in general, unless you had a really abusive parent, which happens sometimes, but not all the time. They wanted to have a decent relationship with both parents and for the fighting to stop. They did not want to take sides. They did not want to testify in favor of mom over dad or vice versa. They wanted the parents to be what they felt they were entitled to have, which is their rocks, their 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 support system, their strength. And when that's all collapsing around them and their two most important people in their lives generally, their mom and dad, are tearing each other apart, it leaves the child or children with no support. Who are they getting their support from? So they gravitated. I found this very often. What they do is because the divorce rate is basically 50% in this country, right? So what does that mean? It means half their friends are also either have divorced parents or divorcing parents or a terrible marital relationship. And what do they do? What do do teenagers do? They swap horror stories about how terrible their parents are. And kids would say this to me. And this would be like a shock to the parents sometimes. And and so what I do after the interview, I'd give the parents and their attorneys, if they had counsel, a summary of what the children said. And many times when they heard what the child really had to say, that they had fundamental issues with both parents and how they were being put through the cracks, falling through the cracks of this sometimes very emotionally hostile divorce, sometimes that would actually settle the case. Sometimes parents would start crying. Not all the time, but enough times where it truly did make a difference. So listening, you know, the whole thing about point C and the point C video is what do you have there depicted? You have two parents who are claiming they're doing everything for their children, for a child, but are really not listening at all to the child and not willing to compromise because they're carrying around their contentious history and their failed marriage like a bag of rocks over their shoulder and 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 litigating over that, spending all kinds of money and time while, you know, dragging their child, perhaps unintentionally, but really, you know, truthfully, nonetheless, through this very, very terrible process. And now a quick word from our sponsor. Whenever I hear about a protective mom struggling to co-parent with an ex whose alcohol misuse endangers the child, I always recommend Soberlink. If you've been listening for a while, you know how much I love Soberlink. For those of you who are new, welcome and listen up. Soberlink is an alcohol monitoring system that is the most convenient, reliable, and reasonable way for a parent to provide concrete proof that they're not drinking during parenting time. Soberlink uses facial recognition, and it's the only alcohol monitoring system that analyzes and approves or declines identity in real time, meaning that you'll be immediately notified if your co-parent attempts to have someone else use the device. Soberlink also has some of the most high-tech tamper-resistant features on the market, which prevents tampering with the device itself or trying to use alternate air sources like a balloon or an air pump. So basically, any way someone can think of to cheat the system, Soberlink can catch. 
If someone tests positive for alcohol, Soberlink requires additional tests to confirm the non-compliant results. If a positive test happens, the system's retest cycle begins, allowing the co-parent to retest every 15 minutes, up to six times. Upon request from their in-house compliance department, a drinking evaluation is delivered to you to confirm the non-compliant result. Soberlink has two programs. There's a parenting time only program, and then there's a daily testing program. Both programs operate using scheduled testing. So for example, a testing schedule might be that you ask the co-parent to test before their parenting time and then during parenting time. And this helps you feel confident that your co-parent is parenting sober. And if there is a positive test result, you can write into your agreement that parenting time will be reevaluated. Soberlink's reports are admissible in court. And in fact, Soberlink is recommended by courts in all 50 states and in Canada. If you have any concerns about your child's safety while with the other parent, there is no better way than Soberlink to put your mind at ease. For an exclusive $50 off of your device and to download the resource I created with Soberlink, Checklist for a High Conflict Divorce, visit www.soberlink.com DSG. And now back to our show. So Joni, from, from a mental health perspective, the impact on children, like what do you see the short-term, the long-term impact of children being put in the middle of, um, you know, being asked to choose or just being witness to this war? Well, every child responds differently. And if this is a first time situation for them, it can be very unpredictable. But when there's really significant changes going on in relationships, in their home, in their security, this can result very easily in confusion, anxiety, fear. They can start to blame themselves. And then they're like, what did I do wrong? Now, what happens is this can lead to thoughts of uh, guilt or shame. And to know the difference is very important because when somebody feels that they are guilty, they feel like they did something wrong. But when it converts over to shame, they feel like they are the person, you know, they are the wrong. They are wrong, right? It's just their existence. Mm-hmm. They, yeah. as a person, they feel they're wrong. And this right. leads to many, many mental health challenges. In fact, I worked many years on an inpatient psychiatric unit and there, and this was adult and, and you had to be suicidal to be on this unit. And uh, many people either were a product of a divorce, they were going through a divorce, or they had the ongoing effects of a divorce. But the more contentious that the process becomes, it's an increased risk to the loss of the trust and security. People may feel like there's, you know, nowhere to go nowhere to turn. And then we can start to see things like sleep disturbances, somatic responses, which are our physical symptoms like a headache, a stomach ache, but it, it it's coming from an underlying fear and anxiety. And there can be 
ineffective coping. Then we see those trauma responses and that can develop very easily into a mental health crisis. This can lead to a hospitalization. It can lead to self-injurious behaviors. It can lead to risky behaviors, suicidal ideation. But when we look at what a child might do, there's different age groups. I always say, look for any change in behavior because some might start to respond aggressively with anger while others withdrawn. There might be changes in their school performances. They may have decreased motivation. So now you start to see them drop out of extracurricular activities, whatever they may be. You might see that self-esteem issues coming on. And then as they get older, we're looking at some engagement in some risky behaviors. So we might see acceptance through unhealthy relationships. They can go to gangs. And you might see somebody start smoking, going to alcohol, even going into the drugs just for that peer acceptance. But what I found as adults that really impacted them later in life was so many people talked about relationships where there was a confusion where the gratification or the satisfaction of a sexual compatibility was confused with love. And the things that just stemmed from all of that, and then, you know, working with them to, to really uh, take out of their, their head because so many people came in feeling like they were hopeless But what they were doing was really the same thing over and over and over again and getting a different response. And what happened was so many people were treating the underlying anxiety or depression with medication and they thought everything would go away. But medications don't skill build. If medications skill build, I would buy, I'd buy stock in that. Okay. But it doesn't. What it does is it gives the person the ability to sit, attend, focus, which are the prerequisites of learning. And once they're able to come down to that level, again, getting into that logical side of the brain, then you can start to skill build and show them that if you've never been shown something. You can't possibly know about it because we are not born with knowledge. We are born with the ability to learn. So once they understand that and they 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 don't feel like they're a failure and they start to feel hopeful again, that's when we can start structuring them and and help them skill build to get to the goals that they're looking for. And and you know, Kate, a lot of times uh, parents when they're going through a contentious divorce, um they truly don't recognize the 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 hard reality that their actions during that divorce can have an impact on their children not only presently but way into the children's future we all know that even in intact families where you had you know arguably great parents what happens to you in childhood and in adolescence and even in high school can really have a long lasting permanent impact on the decision making process you make as an adult the relationships you you enter into and so when parents start to recognize that their actions in the divorce can have that type of sometimes very negative detrimental impact on their child, 
when it's brought to their attention, while it's the easiest first response is to say, well, it's all the uh, their partner, ex-partner's fault. When they stop and think about it and realize that they can help protect their child from years of ongoing emotional torment by treating each other with respect, even if they don't agree with each other, instead of as mortal enemies and disrespecting the child's right to have a loving relationship with both parents, with two fit parents. Um, that's when things start to make a difference. That's kind of what one of the reasons was and the spirit was behind point C, that the parents in point C never recognized that. They said they said they were doing everything for the child, but they everything they were doing, which you see over and over again in, in, in divorces throughout the nation, um, really were going to naturally lead to the child really having, a, you know, a, a, a loss in her life rather than any kind of victory. For years, we thought, well, divorce does this. And what we've learned, I think, over the years and with the research has shown is that it's not divorce itself that gives children these long-term, long-standing, you know, issues that mental health issues that go into adulthood. It's the nasty bitter right. put in the middle divorce you're i mean you're 100 percent right kate I or mean, an intact marriage that's nasty and bitter or, or, or intact or divorce right? right but the but the truth of the matter is not every divorce is nasty not every divorce is contentious only the ones that go to trial sometimes sometimes and even though sometimes are very are amicable they just don't agree on things so not everything that goes to trial means there's nastiness but I could tell you without question that those cases that are unnecessarily nasty, mutually disrespectful parties, dysfunctional parties, those are the ones that tend more often to go to trial than the ones that aren't, where the people treat each other very respectfully, notwithstanding what went wrong in the marriage. You know, you're spending a lot of money and time <laughs> being disrespectful to your ex, and, it, and sometimes it's not getting you anywhere. I have seen very few cases where someone has gotten anywhere, anywhere in their litigation by being disrespectful to the other side. And conversely, I've seen tons of cases where people who don't necessarily love or even like each other anymore, because they have a child, they understand that it's important to be respectful to each other instead of living in the past and blaming each other for everything that happened in the marriage, to start looking at what their future needs to be together as separate co-parents if they are joint custodians in a case for the sake of their child. Because if you get divorced, you'll say you have a five-year-old kid. Hey, you have at least 13 years more to deal with each other, even though you're living separately. So no one says you have to like your ex-partner. But for the sake of your child, you got to kind of work somewhat constructively on how you're going to show your child that you can work with someone else who may be very important in their lives, even if you don't love them anymore. And so, and so, or ever. And so that, that's a skill set. So they have things like co-parenting counseling and there are things with, you know, there are people who folk who spend years studying on how to take two people who have quote, what irreconcilable differences. So they're getting divorced, but they still have to leave the courtroom with their irreconcilable differences sometimes as joint parents as joint custodians with a job description that requires more than just your biological rights, but requires you to actually be able to deal with someone you may not like so much or even respect in a functional way, just as you might have to, at work, work with a co-employee who you don't really like so much. You're doing it for a different reason, not because you like the person, but because something has to get done. In the case of a divorce, 
you have to sometimes work together for the sake of the child. If there's a restraining order, again, that's a different story. But in a non-restraining order case, you know, that's sometimes what joint custody requires as part of its job description. You know, and I just want to say that it is the hardest, I think, the hardest thing in the world to, I I, want to read something that my ex-husband once wrote to me in a text. We were having a fight. We've been divorced for 15 years now. It's been a long time, right? And we were fighting about something because we still do sometimes. We mostly get along really well, but we were fighting about something. And he wrote to me, he said, our relationship is vast and it can't always stay in narrow lanes. The 25 years of closeness has twists and turns that can't be categorized simply. I just thought that was so beautiful and poignant. You know, it's the one of the most complex relationships in the world. There are people who we've people who have loved each other. We've created a life together, like literally and figuratively, right? And we've broken up and then we still have to remain connected for life. Well, you do. Like, you, you you're right. It's, complicated as hell, right? There's no, I think there's no other context. There's no other sort of relationship that encapsulates all of that. And it's to do that successfully is it takes a lot. It does. Yeah. Well, you know, one of the things that you just said, now you just read something that, you know, really impacted you in a very positive way. This is, this is all about being mindful, right? When those adrenal glands are being set off and you're getting emotionally triggered to learn to push that pause button. And what you have control of is reframing your thoughts, okay? So what you just had there, what you just said, even if you posted it on your mirror in the bathroom, or on the closet, in the laundry room, wherever it is, so that you are really looking at that, reading it, and changing what your focus is. Because whatever emotion it is, if you if you feel like you're scared, you're going to think you're scared, and you're going to respond like you're scared. And if you think you hurt, you're going to feel like you're hurt, and you're going to feel like you hurt. So when you take those thoughts that are very unique and powerful to you and you reframe those thoughts, you think this now, you've changed it around during those down times and now you're going to feel that way because you thought that way and now you're going to respond that way. And that mindfulness and that little, that little, uh, just changing the way that you're thinking can really have an impact on how your day is going to move forward from there. And it also shows, you know, it also shows that the constructive and positive power and influence taking the high road can have in following a divorce. Usually with most divorces, and I've seen divorces, I put some divorces on the record, people got divorced and they and they hugged each other. They left hand in hand. They went to lunch together after the divorce. You wonder why they get divorced. But, you know, but it was amicable. And and you knew that those people, more often than not, were not coming back to court. They, they, they realized even though the relationship was over, there was a value, even if they didn't have kids, but especially if they had kids, in still treating each other respectfully during the process. Generally, when that happens, 
The cases tend to go faster, in my experience. They tend to be less expensive. And also, if you have a child, you're thinking about your life after divorce, that for the child's sake, you it's generally helpful for the parents to demonstrate that they have a, even if they didn't stay married, for the child's sake, they were able to have a functional, constructive relationship. You don't want to have one of these children who has to, because of their parents' dysfunction, even when they get older, has to have separate graduation parties or separate weddings or separate birth reveals because the parents, as basically acting more juvenile or younger than the child, are insisting that they can't be in the same room with their ex. Now, clearly, obviously, in a restraining order case is a different story if they're not allowed to be in the same room. But you even see in cases where there's no there's no domestic violence at all, and each parent is putting their demands on their adult child, and, and which stresses out, you know, sometimes you see these cases where a child's planning their wedding. It's supposed to be all about them, right? The bride and the groom, and it's not about them because the parents are throwing their own emotional trauma into the mix and insisting that they can't sit next to dad or mom or grandma, whoever. And, you know, you're trying to get through a wedding here. And so it's, or, or a birthday party for their grandchild. You're, you're almost acting 40 years younger than your own kid. And so that's not functional. That's not helpful generally to a child. Now, if a child decides they don't want a parent there for one reason or another, that's the child's decision. You know, obviously talking about an adult child, more often than not, all the children want to do is get through their special day and not be, you know, traumatized or be brought back to a difficult time in their life because of their parents' continued war with each other, which is sometimes aggravated by the new the, the new parents in their lives or step parents or significant others. Suddenly you got these strangers throwing, you know, spitballs at each other. And the child whose interest was supposed to be the paramount importance is really not that significant at all in this ongoing fight, unfortunately. And, you know, the, the thing that I want to add to that is that it's not just the parent, it's not just the children that suffer in those circumstances. Like if you can't let go of your resentment and as, as you said, Joni, move into that place of forgive mind. What, what, I'm sorry, what do you call it? Mindful heartfelt forgiveness. forgiveness, heartfelt, heartfelt forgiveness, right? If you can't move into that place of heartfelt forgiveness, you may as well have stayed married. <laughs> you're, you're, you're right. That's <laughs> right? very because good. Because yes. you're divorcing this person for a reason you're divorcing them because you want to get away from the emotional entanglements and if you're con and if you on your side of the street are continuing to hook into those emotional entanglements no matter listen they're going to throw nets over to your side they're going to try and hook you they're going to try and bait you right but your job is to not pick up any of that bait so that you can have the freedom that you that you went through this to begin with to have right and so you suffer. If you're continuing to engage in this, all of this, whatever it is, your kids are suffering, but so are you. Right. And if you're suffering, then the child picks up on those things. You know, uh, they, they, they can feel what's going on. But one of the things that's very important to, to, to discuss, I think, with your audience is that, you know, so many times we, we want to just pull somebody in and talk about it. And we might pull in our family or our friends. And that may help uh, at times to temporarily decrease the stress and anxiety and bring comfort. However, 
sometimes they become emotionally involved and they add the fuel to the fire. They may respond revengefully and it really doesn't help. So they might even see your desire to avoid being reactionary and defensive in your responses as a weakness and not be focused on the emotional and financial benefits to you and your child when in actuality, being in such emotional control is where the real strength originates from. So they may contradict also any legal advisements, or if you have a, a DV advocate, you know, they may not understand and they might contradict some of those things. And then it becomes even more confusing. Yep. Absolutely. Yes. I mean, preach it. (laughs) Preach it, Joni. I always say like, do not take legal advice or divorce advice from someone who is not a divorce professional in your area. Um, and or like a divorce professional, um, like me who can work in any area, but don't take legal advice from anyone who's not a lawyer in your area. I I cannot agree with you more, Joni. They're 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 so well meaning, but they often fan the flames and make things so much more complicated and so much more difficult. I have clients all the time who's like, "Yeah, well, my friend said blah blah blah," and I'm like, "Who's your friend? Right, right. Who's your friend?" <laughs> Sometimes the friend is going to talk to your ex, you know. Too, don't forget that. Right. You know? Well, right, but, but also, yeah, and I've seen a, not, a lot of those situations. I was going to say, or they went through their own divorce, right? This is the other the danger with divorce coaches, by the way. To have a hiring divorce coaches, you've got to be careful that you're hiring someone who actually has training as a divorce coach, as a as a, a coach, like all sorts of things, right? I have like seven certifications at this point. It's ridiculous because there are a lot of people out there who just went through their own divorce and then they've decided that they're a divorce coach, but they don't actually, they're, they're only coming at it from the perspective of right. their experience. Right. Right, right, and that's I not mean, every case. Either. Every every case is unique. There's no two cases that are exactly alike. And even in the law, where 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 judges and courts rely a lot, particularly in family court, on precedent and prior case law, you know, you'll be lucky to ever find two cases that are exactly the same. So there's always the, uh, a, a possible argument that no matter what precedent may be in, under case law, that your situation may be factually very different. So people, they they know what they know from their divorce, but that might not necessarily apply in the next divorce. And so, yeah, you know, to, you know, and, and there's nothing wrong with getting moral support from family and friends in times of, of trauma and crisis. I remember once reading an, an article in the psychological periodical that uh, divorce is, is considered the second most stressful event generally in someone's life. The first being the death of a spouse. And so it is natural that it's going to be, um, uh, very, very, um, very hurtful because probably in most cases, the person who you are married to is the person you trusted most and relied upon most in cases of trauma, in cases of of turmoil and stress. And now not only do you not have that person to rely on during the emotional uh, uh, trauma of a divorce, but they're going against you, sometimes right. sending typewritten insults, <laughs> courtesy. Right, right. right. So you got to be careful with that. But the real thing is this. There's nothing wrong with having uh, emotional support, but when people are giving you, you know, all of their free unsolicited advice as if they're experts on everything, 
and you follow that advice and it doesn't work in your favor, the one who's impacted is you, not the friend or not the relative. So we always used to say, we've done lots of seminars on this topic. And remember that game show deal or no deal with Howie Mandel, you know, and, and, and the contestants would have their list of adv- their advisors would come up there and tell them whether to take the suitcase or not take the suitcase. But they had no greater knowledge than anyone else. And they would say, you know, take all of these risks and do this and do that, just talking off the top of their head. And when the contestant lost, the the the, the advisors, oh, sorry, too bad. <laughs> That's kind of like divorce when you're taking it. You're taking divorce advice from sometimes people take divorce advice from complete strangers they meet in chat rooms online or whatever the case may be. It's crazy. And um, you know, there's nothing wrong with listening to whoever you want to listen to, but the decision making process really has to be owned by you and to determine what you think is in the best interest long-term, not just immediately. People make such rash decisions sometimes in divorce. You see people all the time. They, they had a, they had a, you know, an argument with their ex. Now they're moving out of their house the next day, not even thinking about, well, if you move out, yeah, you know, where are you going to be living if this divorce takes place for the next two years? You know, and then you're trying to get back into the house and then there's struggles over custody and you could lose custody potentially if you don't have any kind of plan for where you're going to house the child, that type of thing. But people do this because they say something like, I can't, I just knew I couldn't spend another second with that person. And so they just left and with no plan at all in place. And so it makes their case much more difficult because they're, they really sabotage themselves. Now, some people have to leave, obviously, because it's a dangerous situation. But even then, you could go for a restraining order and maybe get possession of the property where you've been living. Yes. Planning right. is paramount. Thank you guys so, so, so much for coming on. And can you just tell everyone where they can learn more about Point C and all the amazing work that you're doing? Sure. If you go to, there's a Point C website, it's free. Nothing's being sold on there. It's www.pointcdivorce.com. And also the actual, so there's several resources on there, different videos and such, along with the actual Point C video. The Point C video um, is also on YouTube. If you just type into YouTube Point C uh, video divorce, it'll come right up. And uh, also it's available. I know AFCC as well as APFM and various organizations um, have, you know, come out in support of Point C, which is very nice. And we appreciate that. And they have links to it available on their site. So also our family wizard, which many of you are familiar with, that's kind of a worldwide organization with uh, communication software for parents who have, you know, have some challenges, you know, after separation or divorce, communicating with each other. So they just did a whole feature on that last week. So if you just type in Point C Divorce and also Jones, you'll probably be able to get to it. We also have on the website that if anybody has any questions, they can ask the questions. But, you know, Kate, one thing I want to to reiterate with your audience is to continue to attend your podcasts because there's so many resources that you have and they can pick what's relative to them. And, and for them to be open to the mindset of compromise because that's going to make the difference. Learn about mediation, what it is, how it differs from a court hearing. And then, of course, the uh, the skill building. But when they develop their plan, write it down, review it, and maintain it. And sometimes when the emotion gets too close to them, I tell them, take it out of their head. 
what would you tell your best friend if this was happening to them? And a lot of times they have the answer right inside of them all along. And I always refer that to Dorothy and the Wizard of Oz with the ruby red shoes. She had it there all the time that when you can just take the emotion out of it, a lot of times you have the answers sitting right there. You just have to learn how to to get to them. It's it's really true. And when you uh, yeah, I know your podcast is called the Divorce Survival Guide podcast. So for divorce survival, uh, you know, just one tip, at, at least in our years of experience, um, that so many of these cases go on and on and on. Uh, not necessarily because of the complexity of the issue, but because one or both parties feel they're being disrespected by the other party. Whether they're right or wrong doesn't matter that much. But this is what fuels so much of unnecessary litigation and sometimes taking the high road and initiating with the olive branch first, no matter what happened during the divorce, as long as it's not, you know, a restraining order situation and showing respect to the other side. Very often that results in the other side starting to show respect to and getting your case. Well, done. you actually shock the other side when yeah. you do that because well, they're exactly. not expecting say, it. Even if they don't deserve it, right? Yeah, even right. if they don't deserve it, it's an acting job. It's right. a, yes. what, What's it most is, important yes. is it's a strategy mindset. Right. It, and yes. it helps your child too. It helps yeah. your child too. Sometimes if the child sees the parents formerly at war, now at peace with each other, the, the only real side effect that's the danger is they might fall on the floor in shock and hurt their yeah, head. You that's know? Right. But they might, that's but they right. might really, re that could potentially be the best gift you can give your child, you know, who's been through years or longer of, you know, parental conflict. But thank you for having us, Kate. We really, we really appreciate it. Yes. Thank you so much. You guys are awesome. And um, I just really appreciate it. And so, Everyone can go to pointcdivorce.com and find out more about the work that Joni and Larry are doing. Thank you so much for being here. You're very welcome. Thank and best you. of luck to everyone who's going through a divorce right now. We know it's a tough situation, but there is light at the end of the tunnel. There is. That's right. Thank you so much. Thanks for tuning in to another episode of the Divorce Survival Guide podcast. If you like what you hear, head on over to Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen in and leave me a review. And don't forget to follow me on Instagram at The Divorce Survival Guide. I'll see you next time. And until then, remember, you, my love, deserve to be happy.